Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious and merciful. Good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to another episode of the Drive Time Show here on the Voice of Islam. Today, with myself, Raza, and Brother Kayum, over the next two hours, we're going to be with you talking about two topics. In the first half of the program, we're going to speak about refugees. And then in the second half of the program, we are going to talk about the interfaith fun run, which is going to take place on the 3rd of September here uh, in London. What exactly that is, uh, how you can get involved, how you can take part, all of that coming up in the next half of the program after the news at 5. As always, you can give us a call on 0208-687-7878 if you want to get involved, or you can send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. We're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and you name it. Brother Guillaume prefers the method of emailing. Uh, you can also write a letter. He will open it with his own hands <laughs> and reply the old way. I, I prefer... With a chisel and... Uh, what was it? Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you, brother. Peace be on you. I, I prefer the letter to be written in... With with the with the bamboo bamboo yeah. with, with, with on, the, on papyrus on, yes <laughs> you know I I still do my, my calculator is still an abacus, abacus. According, to, according to brother Raza so. <laughs> So, uh, I just yeah. wanted to get this out of the way before we get <laughs> before we get into this. That was my job for the day. Wonderful. Good to yes, have you here. Good to have you here as well. Um, it's it's been a while uh, since uh, it was both of us doing the show. Brother Daniel has yeah. gone AWOL. AWOL, yeah. He is, is absent this is, without this leave. Is, this is what happens. Uh, not a lot of people can, you know, de- de- deal with this dynamic that we have you and me exactly but anyways it is friday it is forgiven it is friday as well um if if you haven't uh, guessed it is me and brother raza <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes the first topic that we're going to be talking about is refugees and it's not just refugees the question that comes to mind the question that we are discussing are they deserving of dignity or disrespect i mean a lot of people might think well, it's a rather silly question, naive question. Of course, everybody deserves dignity. However, the reality of what is happening hmm. is different. Unfortunately, we are living in times where disrespect is being given preference over maintaining people's dignity. And it is labeled as free speech. Yeah. It is labeled as my opinion, my right to say what I have to say. It is labeled as you name it. You know, we, we are living in times where we are thinking of legislating thought processes. Hmm. Um, dangerous times, dangerous times. Um, but we will come back to that, I'm sure, later yeah. on. Um, hardly a day passes without breaking news of migrants and refugees in the current world climate. And due to this migration, is set to become one of the defining features of the 21st century. I mean, um, correct me if I'm wrong, brother, Raza, the most number of wars have happened hmm. in the 21st century yeah. as well, hasn't it? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we always talk about refugees. We always talk about migrants. Uh, maybe one day, um, I'm sure the producers are listening, we will talk about the causes of why there is such a migration crisis. Because there is a crisis. There's yeah. no denying it. Yeah. Um, but it's how one handles the crisis, which is the utmost question. And according to the World Development Report 2023, the number of people worldwide living outside the or- original or the origin countries as of 2023, is at its historical high, almost quadrupled the level in the 1960s. About 2.3% of the world's population, which is 184 million people, live outside their country of nationality. The combined impact of cries, uh, or the, uh, the combined impact of crisis, um, um, poverty, inequality, violence, 
um, around the world uh, has led to unprecedented number of people fleeing their homes in search of safety, better living conditions and employment opportunities. Um, and and not to mention survival. Hmm. You know, they're escaping death. Yeah. That is, I mean, you know, that is the key. A lot of people um, just do not understand. In the, within the Western world, that concept is misunderstood because people in the West, they are fortunate. They've never, ever been in a situation where it's do or die. Whereas a lot of the countries that we have spoken about, a lot of the countries where there is war, there is poverty, there is uh, conflict, the situations has got to a point where it's do or die. So, it, you know, that needs to be understood in order for mm. this discussion uh, to make sense to people within yeah. the Western world. And at the same time, you have significant gaps that exist in humanitarian protection, which is increasing numbers of migrants who do not fit into conventional categories of international protection. Now, this phenomenon is further exacerbated by increasing negative attitudes towards migrants as states scale up their border controls. Where do you turn to when you become the world's most unwanted? Now, about a month ago, you might remember, the world was shocked by the disaster in the Mediterranean that cost the life of more than 500 asylum seekers and migrants who had tried to reach the southern shores of Europe on flimsy, crammed vessels. The boat was carrying up to 750 Pakistani, Syrian, Egyptian, Palestinian refugees and migrants. And that's exactly what you just mentioned. We do not understand the circumstances. We, as much as you try to put yourself in their shoes, it's just simply not possible. What drives a person to make that journey on foot, to make that journey on water, despite the the dangers that, that are known to them. And look, in, in the time that we live in, we know what is happening around the world. You have smartphones, you get uh, to hear what is happening in the news. And just you know, two days ago, we had the 41 migrants that died in a shipwreck off the coast of Italy. And this phenomenon of people resorting to these perilous journeys in search of protection or decent life opportunities is no doubt a major issue of our time, as you mentioned. And, you know, to put this into context, and this is something we spoke about over a month ago, when Brother when, when Brother Raza talks about the shock disaster in the Mediterranean, which took 500 asylum seekers' lives, that was the same period when the submarine went uh, um, with, with the five millionaires who wanted to explore yeah. and, and uh, have a vision, have a vision um, and on all, all kind of see the 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 sunk Titanic, and yes, they they chose, and it was it was a um, it, it was a catastrophe. Again, that was a catastrophe too. There is no comparison, but the way countries and authorities dealt with it yeah. was questionable, because there were these five people who wanted to explore, and governments came out with millions. Yeah. Um, authorities. Oh, went yeah. The army, the navy, the army, everyone, everybody involved, came yeah. out um, to 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 assist um, in in trying to save these souls. And again, yes, they, they were they, they were in desperate situation. They needed saving, and unfortunately, um, they were unable to do so. But the resources and the provisions that were put across the table in order to save those people. When when we talk about the same provisions and we talk about the same um, resources for the saving of 500 asylum seekers, um, suddenly those resources disappear. Yeah. 
And to me, as an individual, as a personal opinion, when I think that you are measuring the quality of the life of people on the basis of what wealth they have and where they may be coming from, that's disrespect. Yeah. That's not maintaining dignity. Human dignity. Exactly. That's not disrespect to any country, any nationality. No, exactly. Any, yeah, it's just human human disrespect, no doubt about that. Now, for Muslims, we're fortunate enough that God Almighty has given particular importance to giving refugee or refuge to people who need it and, and who ask for it. God Almighty made it our duty in Islam to help refugees and asylum seekers to the extent of our capability, just as we would wish someone would help us if we were in their place. If you look at the history of Islam and the lifetime of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he also emphasized on multiple occasions and how important it is for us as Muslims to help another human being regardless of their faith, regardless of their background, regardless of their color or their creed, when they seek help or ask for any sort of refugees, uh, any sort of refuge. Just to give you an idea, in this year alone, more than 1,800, 1,800 people have lost their lives uh, just trying to cross from Northern Africa into Europe. How much of that has been covered? Well, that question is up for you to answer. Let's go and talk to our first guest of the afternoon. We have with us Leah Corbin, who is a Media and Communications Manager at the Refugee Council, a leading charity working with refugees and people seeking Asylum, good afternoon, welcome, assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, uh, Leah, thank you so much for taking time out and uh, and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Oh, good afternoon, thank you for dedicating this uh, this show to this really important topic. Um, and can I just say that your introduction is really spot on, you started the conversation by saying that, of course, everybody deserves dignity, but that's not what we've been seeing. So I just want to thank you for starting off the conversation on these terms. Thank you so much uh, for the work you do. Um, Leah, with the current refugee crisis in the United Kingdom, firstly, is there a crisis? And secondly, how, they, how are they being treated? What can, um, what can be some innovative approaches or efforts to provide mental health and <clears throat> psychological support to refugees? in these tough times. And the reason I ask, we, we tend to use the word crisis a lot. Mm. And sometimes I wonder, are we making a crisis of, of, I mean, helping refugees shouldn't be a crisis. Are we not using incorrect words here? That's a very good question and a very good um, way of, uh, of stating it because it's true. Uh, we do have um, an issue with uh, refugees not being able to access the support that they need, and you mentioned in particular mental health, but does that mean that it has to be um, termed as a crisis? I'm not so sure. What we have is a cohort of people in the UK who are refugees and who do need um, support, and uh, I'm glad that you mentioned men mental health because refugees are actually five times more likely to have mental health needs than you or me or anyone else in the UK population because Obviously, they are traumatized by their experiences, their journeys. Um, in the UK asylum system, it's a very com complex system, so they have to deal with a lot of anxiety. So there's a huge mental health need uh, there, and uh, there is really a need for the psychosocial support to help them to rebuild their lives and um, you know start building up their strength so that they can restart their lives um, fresh uh, here in the UK. Now, in your opinion, how can the public perception of refugees be positively influenced? Um, 
this is I mean this is something I, I, I spoke about earlier that we, we are expecting people to have a positive influence on um, you know have a sympathetic perspective for refugees but mm. these people have never had it um, bad in a sense where how refugees circumstances or what kind of environment that these uh, poor souls are coming from. What? Yeah, I mean, what, what it's a role, sad reality. Yeah. What role uh, can we play as individuals, like someone like me, Raza? What can we do to um, to to promote that dignity that we're talking about? To take into mm-hmm. account that hold on, that you know, the, the, their dignity is is something that we must protect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talked about the, the media portrayal of these issues, and in the UK, this, the portrayal of refugee issues is so polarized. It's very, it's also very number based. You know, we hear mm. things like X number of people crossed the channel in a small boat this year, that kind of thing. Yeah. But what we need to do in order to change that public perception is to actually make sure that people know the human reality behind these numbers. You know, it's about showing the real stories of these refugees and who they are. You know, they're a father, they're a brother, they're a, a friend, a, an artist, an engineer, a chef. They're real human beings. And it's about kind of showcasing this human reality. And you're asking what we can all do. And we can all play a role in that. You know, we can, um, you've got your radio show. We can use this to amplify the voices and the perspectives of refugees. And we can educate ourselves and others on the, the realities of this refugee experience. Um, and there are other things we can do as well. You know, we can um, we can all support refugee-led advocacy and campaigns and see what kind of campaigning we can we can join. But it's mostly about kind of really remembering that these are human beings and trying to show these stories and amplify these voices and these perspectives. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I live close to the home office, and uh, every morning when I'm driving my son to school, I see a huge line. A, sh- a huge queue outside the home office. Now, there are definitely you know challenges that refugees are facing in terms of legal status and also access to basic services. How are you working to advocate for policy changes that benefit the refugees as well as the asylum seekers? Yeah, I mean, the cues that you're seeing, they're, they're such a metaphor for the system as a whole, because one of the biggest challenges in the system is this queue, this what we call the asylum backlog. We've got over 100,000 people who are waiting mm. for a decision on their asylum claim. And they, these are really long waits. I'm not talking about three or four months. There are people who wait for, you know, three years or more uh, to have a decision on, on their asylum claim. To, they wait to be recognized as refugees by the government. And during this time, they lose months and years of their lives. You know, they're, they're stuck in a hotel room or wherever they've been put. They're not allowed to work. So... Um, what we as an organization, the Refugee Council, are doing is we're campaigning to get the, the government to do what they need to do and to process these claims faster and more efficiently. You know, um, if they can just clear this backlog and put proper resourcing behind it, then these refugees won't have to be stuck in hotel rooms and they can start you know, working, rebuilding their lives. They can start putting down roots. So it's about this like campaigning work to get the government to actually listen and do what's needed in order to, to make refugees' lives easier. Um, Leah, I mean, Brother mm. Raza mentioned the queue. Just from a visual perspective, when people mm. see that queue, they automatically um, develop um, a, a perception. Whereas, mm. home office building is huge. It's it's a very it's a huge high rise. 
shouldn't there just be a system? I mean, those cues don't need to be there. Where, again, I'm just talking from a visual point of view. And, and when the public who drive past and they see these cues like Brother Raza did, it, it, it form, and they form an opinion that, oh, look, so many people are coming and they're queuing outside the home office. And it gives a negative impression. And, and impressions matter. Why not create a simple system like come in, collect a ticket and come back? at a certain time or there is ample space within the building to ensure that there isn't queues outside why why aren't these simple things which which actually put a negative impact on public's opinion why don't these simple things get tackled that's a very good question i don't know the answer to that i mean all i can say is it doesn't have to be this way no. you're right that it doesn't have to be this way there are other ways of doing this both in terms of, you know, small things like seeing a queue outside of the home office building, but also in terms of like the larger picture across the country. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to have hundreds of thousands of people waiting for years um, for a decision on their claim. It doesn't have to be this way. There are better ways of doing this. Um, And what we need is actually to take a step back as a country and think of it more strategically. You know, the way we think about issues like climate change, we don't think about like one small thing at a time, or I mean, maybe that's not the best example, mm. but um, I'm just saying we need kind of a, a proper national refugee strategy. We have to think of holistically, how are we going to tackle these issues? How are we going to establish safe ways for refugees to come here and to live with dignity, to be with their families? How are we going to uphold the right for people to apply for for asylum in the UK? So it's about kind of taking a step back and think, rethinking um, our strategy as a whole and our approach to, to refugees. Um, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be this way. I lastly, from my side, I want to ask you, based on your experience and your expertise, w- mm-hmm. what are some common misconceptions about refugees that maybe you've come across and and mm-hmm. that you'd like to dispel? Uh, if I if I may just add to that last question, is there uh-huh. such thing as illegal immigration, which is what the politi- what the politicians talk <laughs> about? It, that's and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that that term doesn't exist legally, does it? I I would agree with you. I mean, we, are, we the UK is one of the founding signatories of the U, U, UN Convention on Refugees, which says that, you know, it's a human right to claim asylum on UK soil. So I think that anyone who arrives in the UK to claim asylum can't be deemed legal or illegal. Um, and actually, uh, you, you asked about common misconceptions about refugees and one of the questions that I get asked a lot, even by kind of well-intentioned people, well-intentioned friends, is when we see people crossing the channel in a small boat, why don't they just apply for asylum at an embassy in their home country instead? Yeah. Um, and the answer, which, you know, it's surprising how few people know this, is that it's impossible to apply for asylum in the UK without physically being on UK soil. Mm. So if you're, you know, if you're stuck in a war, if you're in Sudan trying to flee from from conflict or persecution. You can't get on a plane to come to the UK. You can't get a visa. You have to physically be in the UK in order to claim asylum because there are no safe routes for uh, refugees to come to the UK or or for most refugees, I should say, the the exception being Ukrainians. But most refugees who want to claim asylum here have to physically be here. And that's something that a lot of people don't know. And that's the reason why there are so many people taking these dangerous journeys. And the answer is that we need more of those safe routes to, to arrive here. Leah, finally, what can I do as an individual? You can keep doing what you're doing. Um, you know, speaking to um, to your listeners and to your friends and family, to anyone who can, uh, who is interested in these stories. 
um, about the human reality of what it is to be a refugee. You know, you can keep amplifying those voices and those perspectives, talk about it with your friends, your listeners, your families, and just make sure to shine a light on the reality of the refugee experience. Wonderful. Leah Corbin, thank you so much for taking time out and giving us an insight into uh, the crisis that we are facing. Um, um, I wish you a fantastic uh, afternoon and a weekend ahead. May God, may God Almighty bless the hard work that you do. Um, until until next time, I'm sure we will call you again because mm-hmm. this is a subject we are going to be talking about again and again. Um, may, uh, may peace be on you. Thank you very much. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 02086877878 is the number for you to call if you want to have your say. Prior to the passage of the Aliens Act in 1905, there had been no permanent and official immigration controls here in the United Kingdom. This meant that a person who wanted to come to the UK uh, could do so, subject to paying for a passage. There were no passports, no checks on arrival, and no limitations on residence. Say that again. I mean, I mean, you know. Yeah, it is. It is true. <laughs> no passports, no checks uh, on arrival, and no limitations on residence. Times have changed. Times have changed. And you're talking about United Kingdom here. <laughs> And since then, from tens of thousands of Protestants, Huguenots from France to 80,000 German Jews found refuge in the UK till the post-war period. And then the Refugee Convention was agreed in 1951, which came into force in 1954, three years later. Post-war, since the Refugee Convention, again, many different groups of people in bulks have found refuge here in the UK, including 200,000 Polish people, 22,000 Hungarians, 10,000 Vietnamese, 140,000 people from Hong Kong, 4,000 Chilean, and more recently, 175,800 Ukrainians, to name just a few. Now, seeing that you've given all these statistics, we are asking a question um, on our Instagram story. Is it Instagram story or Twitter? Yeah, we uh, stick to Instagram these days. So the question is, is the number of people coming to the United Kingdom very high? And it's quite a simple poll, yes or no. And unfortunately, it saddens me. Mm. It really saddens me that people are saying 77% yes at the moment and 23% no. And I'm hoping and praying that they're just going according to the headlines. They haven't really listened to people like Leah, um, who has given us some harsh truths some harsh realities, some yeah. harsh definitions, and some real definitions of the the problem that is faced by um, by these refugees, by these people. So you know, do 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 go on to our poll, um, and and I hope that it will change by the time we finish this show. Now, the United Kingdom does have a long history of receiving refugees. There's no doubt about that. Whether it is a proud record of welcoming refugees, that is a question some people might say is uh, is not that you know straightforward to answer. And for some, it's even more questionable. There is an argument that the EQ has a track record of choosing bespoke schemes for targeted groups of refugees since the imposition of immigration controls in the UK. The problem, however, with bespoke schemes, though, is that it becomes likely that discrimination occurs, refusing to take young men with dark skins from the Middle East or Africa, for example, but taking women and children with white skins from Ukraine and wealthy, skilled people from Hong Kong. Well, that's the, the, 
sad reality, or that is well, maybe not sad reality, but it it is what it is. I want to clarify some one thing though. the The media is very good, and politicians, unfortunately, also very good at put and at, at pitting one against the other. Hmm. The people from Ukraine need help, and they should be given help. People from Hong Kong need help, and they should be given help. Just like people from Syria, Afghanistan, Palestinians need help, hmm. and they should be given help, given given assistance, humanitarian aid, and the relevant rights that are be giving to everyone else. And the the sad reality at the moment is that they have it's it's the old divide and rule. Yeah. Let's divide these people up, who all of them actually have exactly the same need. Yeah, they need assistance. Exactly, and we're picking and choosing based on bigoted perspectives and yeah. narratives. Now, when I said that, you know, the, speaking about these bespoke themes, they're not they're not bad, right? So that's that's not what we're saying. They're mm. obviously not. Yeah, but they should sit alongside the refugee convention, not replace it. So refugees should be and are, according to international refugee law, permitted some agency about where they seek refuge. That's exactly what Leah was saying in the beginning as well. Before we go to our next guest for today, just quickly, I mentioned before that in Islam, God Almighty has instructed Muslims to help a person in need regardless of their belief, nation, gender, or any other factor. If you look at the Holy Quran, it teaches Muslims to help one another and provide you know, shelter, food, refuge, basic human rights, even in the time of war, even to those that you are at war with. Never pick and choose who to help, nor discriminate one race or belief over the other. That's the example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. That's what we see in early Islam, and that's what we should practice in this day and age as well. Accept the asylum of unbelievers coming from nations at war with the Muslims even. The belief or color of a person is no excuse to deny them asylum or refugee status. One verse that we often quote here on the Drive Time Show, as well as generally on the Voice of Islam, is that, and let not the enmity of a people incite you to act otherwise than with justice. If that's something that we apply to person A, it also needs to be applied to person B. Joining us now on The Drive Time Show is our next guest for today. Ravishan Rahel Mutia is the Communications Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. He's a, he's, he led record-breaking parliamentary election campaigns and winning deputy leadership campaigns at the Labour Party. He has campaigned and volunteered with migrants and refugees' rights groups and excelled in masters in international law with a focus on international human rights and international refugee law. With that, Ravishan Good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good afternoon, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, let me ask you, what do you believe is the impact of restrictive asylum and immigration policies on the you know the refugees' access to services and, and support? Well, yeah, look, it has a massive impact. Well, firstly, we know that people have no safe routes to arrive here, so they're forced to take dangerous routes across the channel, which we know is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. Then if they're lucky enough to make it here, they're demonised by our media and our politicians. And then finally, what about access to services? So where do the government house these people once they arrive? We know they could be in hotels, detention centres, private housing, army barracks, or even now floating barges none of which are anywhere we would want our families or loved ones to be housed. 
you know, most of the clients we work with live in shared housing, but this isn't safe shared housing. There's none to very little privacy. Housing managers regularly intrude and cross any boundaries of privacy. And people who have come here and are already traumatized by breaches to their privacy are left wide awake through the night alert and praying that their door isn't opened by a stranger. Now, one of our clients at the JCWI, uh, who was very vulnerable, was attacked three times in the house by another person living there. They ran away after being attacked, and the police took them to another hotel, but they ended up spending that night on the streets and multiple nights. So, you know, it's it's a terrible situation for people. Uh, It's traumatic, it's horrendous, and and really it's a, a total disgrace, and we shouldn't be treating people like this at all. Ravishan, you mentioned uh, accommodation. I, I fail to understand. I I work, I have got experience working in, in the property sector. Um, I understand I and, and I agree shared housing isn't ideal, but it's a beginning. But on one side, we have um, regulation for resident UK people for houses with multiple occupations where they have to meet certain criteria. Yet the government on the other side is saying, well, we will house these people into these um, multi-room multi, uh, multi properties and they don't need to abide by any health and safety and fire regulations. Why the, I mean, why the difference? Yeah, I mean, it's a complete disgrace, really, that there's one rule for some people and another rule for others. Like you mentioned, the government recently removed HMO uh, license uh, policy and legislation away from uh, those that are housing asylum seekers and refugees, uh, which is going to create a really dangerous situation for people. That means there could be no fire safety regulations. In this country, we saw what happened when there's no fire safety with the uh, Grenfell fire and the loss of life that we saw there. Um, why is there, it's a brilliant question, why is there a difference in how we treat different people? Because all people are equal, right? Yep. Why Why is the government choosing to treat uh, people that move here, people, some of the most vulnerable people in the world that come here for safety and a better life, why are they choosing to treat them like that? And I think, you know, many people will say because, you know, the racist agendas of, of potentially of our government and, and because of, you know, maybe they want to scapegoat people and blame people for, for some of the issues we have in our society, which it isn't their fault, it's the government's fault. It's a political choice that we have a cost of living crisis and an energy crisis and we have NHS waiting lists that are rising. It's got nothing to do with people that move here. It's the government's inefficiency that is leading to that. You see, you used one word in there which I always wonder why doesn't it get used often enough? And that's the word is racist. It is blatantly racist how policies are being made. Yet no one says it. Why? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a massive fear of using that word uh, when it comes to government policy and legislation. I think um, I think, you know, people are quite worried about saying that. Uh, policies are racist because they fear the repercussions of the government and they fear that they may be um, you know, targeted by the government and and face a backlash. But I think we have to look at the facts. And uh, someone was mentioning earlier about the Ukraine scheme. Yep. We had a Ukraine scheme which saw us welcome Ukrainians and it is completely right that we did that. We should be doing that. We yes. should be welcoming people that are fleeing war, fleeing persecution. 
But equally, we should be doing that for people in Sudan, people in Afghanistan, people in Iraq, people uh, from Eritrea and Somalia. Why are we not welcoming people from, uh, you know, that are facing the same crises all over the world? We should be. And and the thing is, it's not a question about resources. We have the resources. We're the sixth richest nation in the world. We have the sixth most wealthiest economy. It is a, it is a choice that this government chooses how to use those resources and the way they're choosing to use them is by giving tax benefits to the Googles and the Amazons and Mm. the big multinational corporations and they're choosing not to spend on our NHS, not to spend on our education services and then they're choosing to blame people that move here for safety for that. Well, what what is going on here? We have to really look at those facts, and it's it's a total disgrace. And it's it comes down to this government being totally inefficient, not knowing how to uh, run a, a good uh, asylum and immigration system alongside health system, education system. It can go on and on, and we know that because we've seen teachers, doctors nurses striking up and down the country, rail workers, they're striking because they're not being paid well enough to do the jobs that they're trying to do because the government aren't investing enough money into those services. Now, in your opinion, what what needs to be done to strike a balance between the interest of countries who are hosting refugees um, and, and providing assistance, um, you know, balancing their interests with the uh, humanitarian aid that gets provided to refugees. What what is it that's missing? I mean, yeah. I mean, d- to me, the first and far for, foremost is dignity is missing. Whether we like it or yeah. not, that's the reality. That's the truth of it. Yeah, we need to really be centering human stories, humanity. Uh, you know, that this is this area of law, immigration law, is a part of human rights law. Right? It's about humanitarian law. It's about thinking about people and their rights. And someone mentioned the Refugee Convention earlier. The Refugee Convention states that, you know, people have the right to seek asylum where in, in whichever country they're in. So people have the, the right by international law to seek asylum in our country. In terms of host countries, firstly, you know, we, need, we do need global solutions and global cooperation. We need to look at the reasons behind migration, which sometimes are war, torture, political persecution. It will become climate change much more. Uh, you know, we can't help people who move without looking at these issues. And therefore, we need to rebalance global inequalities. And we need to have this sort of global approach to welcoming people who move. Because, you know, movement is a natural human instinct. We've always moved and migrated. That is something that humans have always done. We've built communities in different areas of the world. And it's the most, you know, human trait that there is. So, you know, we've come together and welcomed people before, like I mentioned with the Ukraine scheme. We must welcome people again. We saw in Germany a few years ago, uh, they opened their doors to uh, one million Syrians. You know, this is what we need to do. We have the ability to do it. We have the resources. It's just about the political will to do it. We need the political will to have humane policies around asylum and migration. Now, there has been recent legislative, legislative developments and policy changes against refugees, such as the Rwanda policy and housing refugees and a giant vessel or tents. And, and in fact, Brother Raza was um, telling me today that even with the barge today, they've, they've had to move the, the refugees out because there's an outbreak of bacteria or something. In the water, yeah. In the water. So how does one, uh, how are you responding to this as JCWI charity and what policies can be designed to better refugee situation and how can the community groups amplify your advocacy efforts i mean this is a question i asked our previous guest leah corbin what is it that me and raza can do 
Yeah, well, well, firstly, we wholeheartedly oppose these policies. You know, they set out to create horrible circumstances for people who move, and we don't need to be doing this. We should not be deporting people to Rwanda, a country that they have no knowledge of. Uh, as the courts have recently found it is unlawful. We should not have new laws that break international law. The new Illegal Migration Act is effectively a ban on asylum seekers, which breaks international law. How can we as a country, you know, the p- people talk of Britain as this country of human rights, but how can we as a country be breaking the Refugee Convention? You know, the government are acting a totally lawless way. And then onto, you know, where we house people, we shouldn't be housing people who move in floating barges or in tents. We've seen the weather this summer. It's not really a summer. We've had monsoon-like rains. We don't want people to be housed in a tent like that or on floating barges. You know, like you mentioned, just today we've seen asylum seekers being evacuated from the Big B Stockholm in Dorset due to the discovery of Legionella bacteria in the water, which can cause really serious lung infections. So this barge is a disaster waiting to happen and the government must stop people from being housed there, full stop. It's been called a floating prison, a floating cage, a floating Grenfell. Even the fire brigades union came out and called it a potential death trap. So, you know, we urge the government to stop these inhumane policies now. And instead, what we should be doing is building affordable, clean social housing for all. You know, there's a massive rental bubble where people can't afford the rent they're being charged. So why aren't the government building new social housing for people across the country? That's for people that, you know, domestic people, people that are seeking asylum, uh, you know, people that move to this country and people that are currently in this country should have clean and affordable housing. That's a basic policy. Um, and in terms of community groups, you know, what, what you can do is, you know, amplify our message by joining our movement, join us online, uh, jo- you know, join uh, our mailing list. You know, some people can donate to organizations like ours, um, but it is a cost of living crisis, so we don't need people to necessarily do that. But, you know, we there are more of us. Um, that are on this side and we know that there are many people across the country that support people who move to our country so we must you know unite and continue to come together continue to have our voices heard and continue to show solidarity to those people that come here because that's the nation that we want to have we want to be a welcoming nation we want to have a nation which provides for all Communications Director at the Joint Council for Welfare of Immigrants, Ravishan Rahulmuthia, with us on the line. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Great to have you on and, uh, you know, have a great evening and a wonderful weekend ahead. Peace be with you. Thank you so much once again. Thank you very much. Take care. So let's have a look at the recent refugee situation in the United Kingdom. Hmm. The Prime Minister uh, promised then, Boris Johnson stated that around seven out of ten of those arriving in small boats in the two last years were men under 40, paying people smugglers to queue, uh, jump and taking up our capacity to help genuine women and child refugees. So let me, let me, <laughs> I always laugh when I say that. Um, you know, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, or former Prime Minister Boris Johnson stated that around seven out of 10 of these arriving in small boats is dinghies in the last two years were men under 40. The reason they're men under 40, because these people come from cultures and countries where they take the risk on themselves. Let me say that again. They take the risk of losing their own lives instead of putting their women and children before them. Mm. That's why some of them who do make it come here, work, and if they were given the permission to work, they would be able to call their wives, their children, 
and and so they can come and join them. Hmm. That's why there are more men under the age of forty. And I, I I would always say that question. Put it to yourself. You in within your household as a family, one one would think, well, if I was ever in trouble, would I be pushed forward? Would I be like, no, you go and do it, hmm. or would you be that much more um, uh, in awe of your partner or the head of the household or the man yeah. to to say, no, no, I am here to protect you. Maybe I'm old fashioned, maybe yeah. I'm old school, but to protect you, and I'm going to go and take the risk. Just ask yourself that question. I'll uh, I'll do you one better. Remember Priti Patel? Yep. Now she stated to Parliament in November 2021 that in the last 12 months alone, 70% of the individuals who have come to our country illegally via small boats are single men who are effectively economic migrants. They're not genuine asylum seekers. These are the ones who are elbowing out the women and children who are at risk and fleeing persecution. Elbowing out. Like you've some yeah. you, like you've been there, seen there, done it, and, and I don't think I have to say that the available evidence does not support the claim that young male asylum seekers are predominantly economic migrants rather than genuine refugees. It, it's a question it's, that uh, uh, you know I would love uh, for people who make these statements to qualify it, back it up, give me some proof. Our next guest for today is a poli- is the policy and research coordinator at the No Accommodation Network. Policy and research coordinator uh, Leon Elliott is responsible for promoting the network's policy positions with external partners, whilst keeping NACOM members up to date with relevant policy developments. We're going to speak to Leon and ask him a few more questions about this. Good afternoon, Peace Uponya, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me, and thank you for this discussion. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Leon, how important is it? I mean, we spoken about uh, with our previous guests about housing and how that is looking at the moment. How important is it to house refugees in communities uh, in community-based accommodations and and what's the impact on the well-being and you know, the resettlement of these refugees? Yeah, so to set the scene, most asylum seekers in the UK aren't legally able to work and they aren't legally able to rent either. So whilst they're waiting a decision on their claim, they're provided by housing or with housing by the Home Office. So up until 2020, people would usually be in shared houses or flats. Now, these were by no means luxurious, Hmm. but it meant that people were typically living in towns and in communities and there were benefits to this. So people who arrive in the UK, and I think the speaker from the Refugee Council touched about this, they often have very particular needs that your average British citizen may not have. So that might be specialist health needs, for example, PTSD. But it might also be more everyday needs like language support, for example. And people living in community settings are more likely to be able to access the support that they need. Now, that support might come from the local community, from the masjid, for example. Or it might come from the more dedicated local services, like those within our network, uh, who can provide legal advice or support to a person on their asylum case. And they really understand the unique needs of this group. Um, and don't forget, when someone's accommodated within a community, they become part of that community as well. Hmm. So, for example, many asylum seekers, when they're waiting on their papers, they start volunteering. Maybe they attend college or they attend training and they start building new skills in preparation for when they get their status and when they're able to move on with their life and settle in that local area. But at some point in 2020, the government started housing people away from these community settings 
uh, for example, in hotels on the outskirts of towns, maybe in ex-military sites in the countryside, and now on a barge uh, down in Dorset, where I actually am down today. Um, but, you know, in all of these places, uh, getting that support that I just mentioned becomes a lot more inaccessible. It's a lot harder to access that support. Um, it's important to mention that people in hotels or on the barge also only receive £9 a week uh, to meet their essential needs like tra- transport, toiletries, medication and clothing. So they're often very dependent on external support from local people, from local services. But when they're accommodated away from communities, they simply can't access that. Le- and there's finally... Oh, sorry. Sorry, Leon. I- I'm, I'm sorry to interject. Um, I've I've known refugees from Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Palestine. One thing that is in common with all of these people, they come from societies and cultures and countries where there's no welfare system. Mm-hmm. And even if there was a welfare system, they find it a disrespect yeah. to their family to tap into it. So they believe in working. They believe in self-respect. They believe in in uh, um, progressive thought process and to building life and have um, aspirations. So they come from hardworking cultures, countries. Mm-hmm. So why is it that in this country we don't allow refugees to work so they can cope with their own needs and they won't have to rely on and 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 on, on the welfare and system. contribute to society and contribute to society, which is what they want to do. So we scream and shout at the refugees for our own crazy policy and where we are shooting ourselves in the foot. Has any? I'm sure this is a question so many people must have asked you. Has anybody ever been able to answer that? So yeah, it is a question that we ask the government constantly, and they haven't answered it. Hmm. I think there's been some very good research which shows, you know, how much financial benefit refugees would bring if they were able to work whilst they're waiting for their uh, decisions to be made on their claim. But the government simply won't allow it to happen. Um, I think it's an important point when we're talking about accommodation. You know, we're not talking about people being stuck in hotels for one or two days. We're talking about people being stuck for months yeah. and for years. And it's very degrading when, you know, as you mentioned, if you're completely dependent on the very little support that's coming from uh, the government and you're not able to work, you're not able to feel a sense of fulfillment of personal development, you know. And as I mentioned, even opportunities like volunteering or being involved in community groups, if you take that away from people by placing them far away from communities as well, the situation is even worse. Now, Leon, I want to ask you, uh, you you might have uh, touched upon this. Just just for the benefit of everyone listening, when somebody comes to the UK, applies for refuge, how how or asylum, how how does that work? I mean, what what are some of the steps that they have to go through? Uh, what what is the time period that we're looking at? Uh, could, could could you like uh, like a brief outline? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you would arrive in a country, and you typically would declare that you want to claim asylum at which point you would be screened initially. Um, you would be provided with accommodation if it's deemed that at that point you would otherwise be homeless. So the government has a duty to provide you with some sort of accommodation. Um, as I mentioned before, it may have been in a shared house. Mm. Now increasingly it will be in a hotel. Maybe it will be the barge. And then you would essentially be waiting to have your uh, longer interview, essentially, which is where you would give the Home Office all of the information about your case, and on the back of that, a decision would be made uh, whether you're accepted and you're given a refugee status or you would be refused, at which point 
There are some options available, but you would be liable to be removed from the UK typically. So the time period is a very you know, important question. We've seen significant delays uh, in the last few years, and uh, part of that is due to the number of people arriving in the UK, but more importantly, it's the fact that they're simply not making anywhere near as many decisions on asylum cases as they were mm. in previous years. So as we have them making less decisions, we have more people arriving in the UK, the number of people needing support increases, the amount of time that people are waiting you know, stuck in the situation increases, and that's why we're having to see them increasingly resort to barges, to hotels, to other forms of accommodation, because existing accommodations become full with people who, if you allowed them to work, or if you process their cases, would obviously be integrating into the country in which they've arrived to seek protection in. Mm. How important do you think is the role of the media in shaping the public's perception of refugees, of asylum seekers, and how do you think that this, or does it need to be improved, that perception? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. It's a really interesting question as well. So in the last few years, the situations in Afghanistan, Syria, Ukraine have led to an increase in the number of people coming to the UK, as I think we're all aware. And this is generally out of the government's control. But I think there's two key things that are within the government's control. One of those being the amount of cases that the, that the government makes a decision on for the reasons that I've touched on. And then the second really important thing that I think the government can control is the narrative and how the media presents refugees and asylum seekers. For example, we have the government calling asylum seekers arriving in small boats illegal migrants when, as I think the uh, refugee constituted to mention, the Refugee Council, that, you know, that's not true. It's allowed under the International Refugee Convention. Mm-hmm. Um, the government also gives the impression that everyone seeking sanctuary is coming to the UK, and we know that's not true. So 86% of refugees worldwide settle in a country that neighbours their own, meaning they don't end up in Europe. And of those that do end up in Europe, the UK receives the 16th most asylum applications, so we aren't anywhere near the top. And I saw a really interesting stat today, that the people who have arrived in small boats to the UK make up 0.03% of the UK's population. But I think you would assume if you listen to the media that that number would be much higher. Hmm. So I think the government definitely plays a big role in creating this hostile narrative, which unfortunately is you know, followed by lots of people on the ground and creates quite a hostile uh, atmosphere for people in the system. Leon, you, so you, you, I'll ask you the same question I asked uh, uh, um, Ravishan. You use the word hostile. Mm. Why not racist? Why not bigoted? I think both, I think it's absolutely true that the policies themselves are racist and I think potentially also the politicians starting the policies are racist as well. Um, I guess I guess I, perhaps incorrectly using the words uh, kind of interchangeably because I think they obviously are very different. But I think I would be very confident to say that the UK's asylum system is definitely racist. Now, from your experience, how can we improve policies um, for, for refugees and how can we better incorporate the voices and the perspectives of the refugees themselves, who, who, as I mentioned, I know so many, they don't want help. They, the only help they want, allow us to work. Mm. Well, yeah, exactly. So I think allowing refugees or people seeking asylum, uh, you know, the right to work would be an immediate solution for me to a lot of the issues we see, and a lot of the issues we see with the accommodation situation as well. You know, obviously, then you'd open up the ability for people to rent and have a lot more independent lives. Um, I think also I would definitely say that we need a more streamlined system for making asylum decisions. I think that would clear the backlog. It would move people out of the type of inappropriate asylum accommodation we see right now. 
Um, but I also think, you know, obviously in NACOM, we represent almost 140 organisations working across the UK on the front line. I think we need the government to better fund these local services because they play a really important role in meeting the needs of people, uh, people seeking asylum when those needs do emerge. You know, the voluntary sector, charities, the local faith groups are doing an amazing job, uh, but they are overstretched. So I think they need funding as well. And I think on your second point there, so many support services within the NACOM network are led by people with experience of the asylum system, of mm. being refugees. So they're experts when it comes to knowing the type of support people need and how to deliver it. Unfortunately, government policy teams don't work that way and they generally don't listen to the needs and ask of people mm. in the system. So I think that's we need the Home Office to really open up spaces, opportunities to listen to what those in the system have to say. And I think if they did that, we would see some pretty quick policy changes that would improve the lives of everybody in the asylum system. Finally, very quickly, because we're coming up to the hour, Leon, before I let you go, how can me, how can Brother Rosa, how can our listener help? Well, I think keep promoting, keep talking about the positive stories, you know, creating spaces like this to discuss it. But another thing I would say, and you know, NACOM, we're a, you know, we're a no accommodation network. Within our uh, network, there are around 70 uh, local services across the UK that provide housing for people seeking asylum and refugees. They're only able to do that because of the generosity of the public who choose to host asylum seekers in their houses or let properties to refugees at affordable rates. So we're always desperate for more members of the public to step forward, help in this way, you know, share the message and share the opportunities that do exist to support people whether that's financially, whether it's just raising the message or whether that's, as I said, opening your doors to people seeking asylum. Because, you know, through that way we can we can meet the accommodation needs, uh, which we know does exist. Wonderful. Leon Elliott, thank you so much for taking time out and giving us an insight into NACOM. I wish you a fantastic evening and a weekend ahead. May God Almighty reward all the hard work you do. Um, peace be on you, brother. Peace be on you too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is one more guest that we spoke to earlier on today, Dr. Ashwini Kisnareddy. She is a Leverhulme Research Fellow at the Refuge uh, Refugee Studies Centre and incoming Sir William Golding Research Fellow at Brasnos College at the University of College. And we asked her a few questions about this topic as well. Um, about her work surrounding uh, refugee children experiences in particular. Now, we're going to play that interview after the news at five. Uh, you're listening to The Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. If you want to have your say, you can give us a call on 0208687 You can send us a tweet. You can send us a comment on Instagram. And on Instagram, we're asking you the story. Uh, the, the question, is the number of people coming to the UK very high in your opinion? So go to Voice of Islam UK, leave us a comment, cast your vote, and we'll include that into the program. Here's the news at five. We'll be back after that. Stay with us. You're listening to the Voice of Islam radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, peace upon you, and welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. We are talking about refugees. Do they deserve dignity or disrespect? I think, of course, with many shows and many topics that we have here on The Voice of Islam, it's just 
we know the answer to the question, of course. And I think uh, from what we've just heard and spoken to with our guests, the situation is quite clear. It's right Systematic there. disrespect. Systematic disrespect. That's what it is. So what we need to do, and I think all of our guests have highlighted that to raise awareness, to do our bit, whatever we can. And I think that the, to change the narrative, to change that perspective, it starts within us. I know that many of us might have some reservation, might have those questions based on what we see in the news, based mm. on what we are fed by our news feed, by our social media, by you know friends and circles and whatnot it, it's it's normal it's it's human to be affected by that but to make an informed decision that's that's our responsibility and you know you don't need to do anything you've got a phone yeah yeah you know go into google type in refugee council go into google type in jcwi type in go into google type in nacom yeah while you're sitting there and you will realize the realities, the truths, which will be total opposite to what mainstream media and the politicians are are throwing at you in the name of your vote. So, you know, that's what we can do as individuals is to better inform ourselves by going to the source. And these people, these wonderful people who who work in these organizations, um, Let's go and, and talk to them direct yeah. by, by tapping into the organization. It will cost us nothing. As I said before the news, we spoke earlier on to Dr. Ashwinikis Naredi, who is a, a liver Hume, a research fellow at the Refugee Study Center. And this is what Dr. Kisnaredi had to say to us. Joining us on the Drive Time Show is Dr. Ashwinikis Naredi. She's a liver Hume research fellow at the Refugee Study Center and incoming Sir William Golding Research Fellow at Brazenose College at the University of Oxford. Dr. Kisner, thank you so much for, for agreeing to, to join us here on the Draft Time Show, and welcome on uh, on the show. Thank you very much um, for inviting me to be on the show. I'm happy to be here. Now, a lot of your work surrounds or is around refugee children experiences. If I can start off by asking you if you can share with us some of the possible effects on children when they experience displacement, when they experience homelessness um, uh, in situations that we've seen. Uh, thank you for this question. Um, I'd like to begin to answer this question um, by giving you some figures. Uh, so the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees figures for 2022 are that there were 108.4 million displaced people worldwide. 62.5 million were internally displaced, that is within their country. 35.3 million are refugees. And of these forcibly displaced people, 43.3 million are children and 1.9 million are born as refugees. So these are the sort of figures we are looking at right now globally. Now, children benefit from a stable situation, consistency, a comfortable environment in which to thrive, a society which helps shape them through education, good health care and support all around. In the case of refugee children, all of these factors are forcibly taken away. They are experiencing shock after shock. They are being wrenched away from their homes, traveling days on end, sometimes not getting enough food or sleep, and sometimes in grave danger as their families seek refuge. Unaccompanied minors are in an even tougher position as they don't have anyone to protect them and are at risk of being targeted and becoming victims of modern slavery. 
Displacement and homelessness can also mentally affect the children who have been uprooted and don't know how to deal with the situation in which they find themselves. If we look at refugees from a, a few decades ago, for instance, we know that forced displacement can have a profound impact in the longer term. Thank you very much for that. Um, now, Dr. Kisnareddy, you've, you've written about something that I personally heard for the first time as well, and that is migrant masculinity. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and its effect on, on, on the future generations? Um, yes, my original work was at the intersections of gender and migration, and I wanted to see my, how migration impacts masculinities, as there are so many cultural adjustments that are made when someone from a different culture arrives in a country with a completely different set of mores and values. And these culture gaps and clashes were interesting to study, especially with masculinities, as relational to femininities. So when equality between genders come into play, for instance, women gaining financial independence, working and being educated sometimes changes the balance within the home. And that interested me. It was thought provoking to see a little bit how this impacts in refugees. With migration, there's a voluntary movement to a new country and tough changes are complex. There is a compromise as it was a chosen move. With refugee families, it is fascinating to see this dynamic change a little bit. So most families I've met have only recently been resettled and are very attached to their values. But since refugees are not allowed to work, for example, I see teenage daughters who in the culture of origin would not be working are doing shifts at Tesco, for instance, while their fathers have to stay at home. So becoming a resettled refugee certainly affects family dynamics in a range of ways. Interesting. And so you spoke about, just you just mentioned resettlement. What, what are some of the most pressing challenges that these refugees face in their journey to resettlement and also safety. I mean, you have the displacement and the journey, the new culture, the new country, that's on one side, but what else can you tell us? Well, there's a range of things that um, you can count as challenges that are faced. Um, of course, along the journey, there will be external and internal ones. So externally, the current political debates around migrants can have a chilling effect, wherein there is no difference highlighted between migrants and refugees. A migrant is someone who has chosen to leave their country and can return at any point. A refugee is someone who has been forced to leave and cannot return. So when refugees are called migrants, they are being denied their legal status as vulnerable people in need of protection and safety. By the same stroke, if the political apparatus says all migrants are bad and refugees are grouped together in this umbrella term, then the general population will see vulnerable refugees as bad. So aside from this, there are other challenges similar to the good versus bad migrant rhetoric. There's also the idea that there's a good refugee and a bad refugee. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there tends to be a combination of race and religion involved. We saw this with the Ukrainians being openly welcomed by their Polish neighbors who conversely have bar barriers in place against Afghans and Syrians who are seeking refuge. The same was seen in Calais where the mayor welcomed Ukrainians with open arms and openly evicts the Syrians, Eritreans, Sudanese and Afghans from makeshift, makeshift camps. And speaking of camps, camps were seen as a band-aid to the refugee problem of the Second World War. And now we have refugee camps that are decades old, such as the Tarian Jordan or Kakaman Kenya to name a few. Many children are being born and raised in these camps, not knowing what a different life they lead from the children who were born in countries at peace. For the refugees in these camps, resettlement and safety is still a distant hope. But I also want to talk a little bit about resettlement itself and its challenges, um, because displacement can cause an inability to feel at home in a new country. And there's a latent fear that this home too will not be a forever home. So the impact on mental health cannot be discounted. 
and many refugee children and adults come to a host country after suffering through countless traumas, and these are not picked up straight away. There is no systematic mental health check in some countries. Geneva's city of refuge, for instance, ensures that every child who arrives has a mental health follow-up. In the UK, there is an option to do so, but many children and their families are not aware of these services and as such don't ac access them. Sorry. Now, when resettled children arrive in their host country, they are also facing a range of issues. So often they don't speak the language and it takes time for them to be able to speak enough to talk about their problems. I recently interviewed some young people from Syria and Afghanistan who were resettled in the UK, and their main challenge was the act of statutory provision sorry, for EAL and ESL teaching, that's English as additional language, English as secondary language teaching. I'm currently working on a project with several charities who provide such, such services as local authorities and schools can't offer this support. So there's a range of challenges being faced even after resettlement. We are only starting to see the impact of resettlement on children who were resettled decades ago. So there's still a lot for us to learn. Mm. Now, uh, you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you work on a project with the Department for Education on improving provisions for you know newly, newly arrived children here in the UK specifically. Yeah. In that, do you, do you consider cultural differences and how that impacts you know, the integration process for refugees in their host countries? Um, yes. Um, so the project with the DFE is at its inception right now. So we're starting to think about these issues. Um, and I've just, as I've just said, there's a lot of problems with the EEL provision, which is basically um, not consistent across regions in the UK. Um, it's not statutory, so it means that not every school can provide it. And so there's a big reliance on uh, charities to do so. But importantly, uh, it's not just about language learning. It's also about the fact that um, there, there should be a holistic provision available for uh, the children who have just arrived. We're looking at mental health care, but we're also looking at issues of community and belonging and how youth services and other people can sort of have an impact on uh, building this community and belonging for these children. And I'm going to go back a little bit um, in time and talk to you a little bit about these issues of uh, integration process for refugees in their host countries. Mm -hmm. um, going back in time to think about how other refugees have had to deal with this. So I'm going to give you the example of Vietnamese refugees after they resettled. So um, let's talk about, for instance, the Confucian values at odds with the countries of resettlement in different levels. So if you think about the Confucian tenet of three obediences, a woman owes obedience to her father, to her son, and to her, uh, sorry, to her father, to her son, and before that, to the husband. She is self-effacing, she runs the home while the man goes out and works. The domestic space is the woman's, the public space is the man's. This dynamic changed when the refugee Vietnamese women arrived in host countries where to make ends meet, both husband and wife had to work. So girls grew up, growing up could be educated to high levels and aspire to have a career, which many of them did. And the family is impacted and there's a shift that needs to happen for them to feel at home in the host country. Growing up, many of these children speak of the fact that they feel they have two identities and two cultures, one in the home and one outside. Society accepts them if they feel fit into this mold, but if they don't, they are marginalized. This, I think, is one of the most prominent issues faced by resettled refugee families globally. How to integrate without losing one's culture and values, and if one does this well, how does one do it without feeling torn between the two? Dina Nairi, a former Iranian child refugee in the USA, describes this as being a chameleon. 
changing colors depending on the environment and the people around you. It is perhaps one of the prices that refugee families pay for peace and stability, and only time will tell us how this will impact different generations. Indeed, very, very interesting. Um, thank you very much, first of all, at this point um, for your time, Dr. Kisner Reddy. Thank you for the um, invitation. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Um, and uh, as I said, thank you so much. Have a great weekend ahead and uh, peace be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Allah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. So that was Dr. Ashwini Kisnareddy, who is a Leverhulme Research Fellow at the Refugee Studies Center. And we would like to say thank you to her as well for giving us some time and speak about this very interesting issue. Brother um, Kiyum. I think the, the topic has been as much as we've spoken about <clears throat> refugees, but it's been about dignity, disrespect. And look, talking to the organizations is fairly evident. It is systematic disrespect. It is, it is a vote game. It is about politics. Um, but to our listener, all I can appeal to and I can, I can ask um, is, would you want to be treated in mm. the manner yeah. the refugees are being treated at this moment in time. That's the question you need to ask yourself. Would you w- compromise your dignity? And that's about it, really. And, you know, these people are coming in because they need they need our help. They need our assistance. Um, and one day there will be a time, and that will not. it's not too far, where we will need, we currently need so much from other countries. Mm. It might not be people, but we need provisions, we need minerals, we need natural resources, which we don't have. And we will have to go to other countries um, to get them. Hmm. And they don't want our money because they will turn around. They could possibly turn around and say, well, remember when we came to you and this is how you treated us. I can assure you they won't because what I said earlier these are countries, these are cultures, they come from countries where dignity, self-respect and treatment of others is paramount. Hmm. All I'm saying to you is treat them in a manner that you would like to be treated. And that's, I think, what we want to leave you with, that these are people at the end of the day. We call them refugees, we call them asylum seekers and whatnot, but people have been forced to flee their own country because of fear, because of persecution, because of war things that are beyond their control nobody wants to leave their birthplace nobody wants to leave the place they call home where they grow up in but it is what it is and apart from considering the downsides and benefits of letting refugees into a country it is crucial as brother kim just mentioned to think of them as important lives of men of, of of women children just as important as anyone else living in a certain country with a certain job the United, Conven- United Nations Conventions, UN Convention 1951, relating to refugees, clearly states everyone has the right to seek and enjoy another country's asylum from persecution. 
Some of the basic rights for refugees include not to be returned to a place where they are at risk of persecution, not to be penalized for being in or entering a country without permission, where there is or whether it is necessary necessary for them to seek and receive asylum and to treat them with dignity and with respect. We spoke about you know the 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 the, the right to work and the money aspect. Let me just yeah. finish off with this. Not allowing asylum seekers to work, making them live in questionable conditions, giving them forty pounds eighty five pence per week, yeah. which is equivalent to five pound eighty four per day in the current UK inflation environment, and making decisions for them without including them falls nowhere near to treating them base with 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 basic rights, with dignity, that's, with respect. That's that six hours of parking near House of Parliament. That's not even six hours of parking. Right. Where right. I come from, that's that's one hour of parking. I'm telling you, forty quid, four pounds. No, no not forty, 40 quid. Pounds. Forty uh, pounds eighty. The, the, the day, the week. The, oh, the, yeah, the week. Yeah. yeah. We'll leave you with uh, a quote from His Holiness, the fourth, fifth Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, Hazrat Mazlum Ahmad. He said that if only the major powers and the international institutions, such as the United Nations, had truly acted upon their founding principles under all circumstances, then we would not have seen the toxic plague of terrorism infect so many parts of the world. We would not have seen the world's peace and security repeatedly undermined and destroyed. And we certainly would not have witnessed the huge refugee crisis, which now confounds and frightens the people of Europe and other developed countries. With that, we're going to come close. Uh, we're going to come uh, to an end to this part of the show. We're going to take a very, very tiny break, <coughs> and then we'll be back with the next topic, which is the interfaith hope peace and harmony and there's one specific aspect that we want to talk about the london interfaith fund run joining us in the studio will be a very special guest and we're going to talk to him about what exactly this london interfaith fund run is as well as a few more questions don't go anywhere stay with us you're listening to the draft time show today with myself reza and brother kium You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on the Voice of Islam. In this part of the program, we're going to be talking about interfaith hope. We're going to talk about harmony. How do we promote interfaith dialogue between different religious communities? Because let's face it, here in the UK, we have... So many of them living under one roof, most of the time, peacefully, but sometimes, as it's natural, you get the odd uh, story here and there where people don't really seem to get along. What are the reasons behind that? How can we combat that? How can we do or play our part in order to make sure that the other person who might not be aware of what our faith is, what our religion is, what our belief is, what our you know, thinking is, how can we put them at ease? How can we make sure that we do play our part. Matthew Gold is the program's coordinator for the London Communities at the Faith and Belief Forum. He's joining us here in the studio. Matthew, welcome to the Draft Time Show. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. Nice to be on you. Nice to have you with us. Good to have you on. Thank you so much for, for, for joining us here, first of all. Now, last year, we partnered with them for the London Interfaith Run. 
And this year, it's taking place on the 3rd of September. Correct. 3rd of September at the Stone X Stadium in Barnet. And uh, for those of you who want to challenge yourself, it's not competitive. I know that. But you have uh, three three options. So you get five five clicks, right. ten clicks, and one kilometer. Yeah. Uh, click, clicks, clicks a kilometer? Clicks, kilometers. That's what okay. we... Yeah. yeah sorry. It, yes, in that case, kilometers. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, exactly. Five five kilometers and ten kilometers going earlier in the day, around 12.30. Okay. And then a one kilometer walk or run uh, a little bit later on at, at sort of 2 or 2.30 p.m. Wonderful. Now, according to your website, the London Interfaith Fund Run is an amazing opportunity to send a message. We are on the side of friendship, regardless of differences. Wonderful. Couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Now let's let's start. Tell us about first of all the organization who's who's, who's running this, uh, the Faith and Belief Forum. How did you come about? What's the story? What's the mission? Yeah. So the Faith and Belief Forum was founded um, originally called Three Faiths Forum in 1997. So the Three Faiths, um, because it was founded by a Muslim, Christian and Jewish community leader. So hmm. priest, a rabbi and an imam, which sounds like the start of a joke, but <laughs> yeah. it was, um, of course, for serious, serious work I, only. I will um, say nothing. <laughs> that is, uh, it is the joke. <laughs> Abrahamic religions at that time. It was yeah, exactly. But it was the Abrahamic religions, um, you know, and it was founded with the with the idea of more sort of cooperation and harmony mm. and discussion between these um, different religions and you know, it progressed over time, incorporating more youth work um, over the years. And recently in 2018, uh, rebranded as the Faith and Belief Forum mm. to kind of reflect that actually we progressed beyond just mm. these three Abrahamic yeah. religions. And and it's much more about um, all religions and people of no religions mm. and understanding of what interfaith is for everyone, not just those of those three faiths. Mm. Brilliant. Now, you have three goals. What are they? And why are they so important to interfaith harmony? Yeah, the goals, um, they're a way of us. And how did you come around? How did you get about? How did you decide on these goals? Well, okay, I'll start with what they are, which is their project voice, build movement and equip learners. So they're sort of a different ways that we think about how sort of progressive modern interfaith can look. So project voice is about um, advocating for what groups of different faiths need. Sometimes um, it's, it can be an overlooked sector. We've found sometimes it's sort of uh, boxed away and sort of, you know, these religious groups, they'll, they'll be left to what they are. And we're actually saying, you know, no, they um, both have needs from often local authorities, but also they've got a lot to give mm. as well. So mm. projecting voice um, allows us to connect these religious groups with... Um, decision makers really local yeah. representatives or it could be mps at our events depending on on what it is and and having more of a voice um building movement is is more about strengthening i suppose the interface sector so again using events like the fun run we're going to talk about but many others as well to kind of bring people together and expand the network and strengthen it and make sure there's more ties between people of these different faiths and sort of yeah, use it breaking down these barriers so that mm. people are stronger together, and that um, the, the movement, the, the movements there, really, that that faith and belief in all the positive contributions that it makes, again, can be can be advocated for. Mm. And finally, equip learners. So, 
everyone has more that they can learn if they want to when it comes to interacting with people of different faiths and dealing with different topics on faith because um, whether it's learning about the different philosophies or of, of different religions or learning how better to talk to someone that's of a different faith that you don't know, navigate a different conversation. There's so many different ways. So that's why, you know, we work across um, school children through secondary school. We have a university program that allows them to learn more about interfaith in social leadership and also workplace training mm. too, um, because that's a topic, you know, we, we've run a series called We Don't Talk About Religion or Politics mm. for, um, and we focus on the religion <laughs> side of things more, of course, um, but that's for workplaces um, as well because it can be seen as a sort of taboo subject mm. and, and we want to sort of, again, help break that yeah. down. On, on that, when you say it's becoming a taboo subject, is that also because, I don't know, are people becoming more and more or less interested, more and more less tolerant towards, towards people's beliefs and, and, and faiths? Or, or is it an emotional thing? People take... Um, people take everything to a extreme emotional perspective. Everything becoming very sensitive. It's hard. To, different cases, are, of course, can sure. can yeah, be yeah, different. Um, but it, it can be a little bit of all of those. I think perhaps there's sort of a culture that that you know, especially corporate world and work life. You want to just be an employee that gets mm. a job done, mm. and that's it. And then suddenly if you're not talking about um religion and when we say talking about religion it's not that you need to have a deep conversation about your ethics but it's more what do you need in order to just be able to be yourself yeah. in the workplace do you need a few minutes to pray would it be beneficial if there was a an accessible prayer room mm. that sort of thing um might you need flexible bank holidays instead of a rigid bank holiday structure would it be helpful if you know, if it's possible to have different times that you can be off during the year for a festival, mm. you know, those sort of things just we, we one of the main messages is ask, don't assume so that it's mm. conversations can just be open and necessary and that you don't have to worry about asking, do you have a need that's different from the default assumption? That's mm. kind of really what we're talking about there. Brother Azad just mentioned the word tolerance. Do you think as a society we are becoming more or less tolerant? of individual beliefs? That's, that's quite a complicated question. I suppose when I... When I told I, you he's going to be the one. He's going to be the one. Um, <laughs> you know, it's hard because there's there's very different sections. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot of different people that interact with different echo chambers, let's say, and we can talk about... I'm sure it's come up before social media can amplify things and, and it's very easy for outrage to come that way. But actually... In in what I'm, in what I've been doing, the people that I've been working with since being the programs coordinator in in working with communities, there is so much tolerance, and people do want to treat people as individuals. I think in some ways people are bored bored of outrage in a in a way. You know, if you if you're on your phone and you see a lot mm, of that, mm. when you actually come to treating people how they want to be, how you'd like to be treated, and and being positive. That that feels like what I am seeing, mm. and it's it's hard. Yeah, and and so when you say this, what what age group are we talking about? Because you know we have 
the the elders in society. I mean, we have he's, a. He's pointing at me. No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying to make a point. The here. elders the, in society. <laughs> I know. I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> I'll do That's it for okay. you. Don't worry. That's my job on the show, anyways. So, or, or I mean, when when it comes to younger generation, when you, when you talk about social media, when you talk about this interaction, is that is that are they more hopeful are they the ones who are going to make those bridges is that something that you i mean you yourself quite you know from the looks of it a young young man yourself but what got you into this well what initially got me into this i was i did the university program so i started um on on the social action pro- uh, project called parliamentals so a team of five students yeah. work under the mentorship of an mp to deliver a social action project um in their local area to the university. And I really like the method of breaking down identity and um, identity. It's a little bit because I'm Jewish, but brought up in South London, I was relatively removed mm. from most of the Jewish mm. community. So it's a slightly strange relationship with um, not having a big religious community, but mm. also being, you know, the, uh, one of the only Jewish people in a non-Jewish school. So what I really liked about the Parliamentals program and the Faith and Belief Forum method was breaking down that identity and saying, you know, rather than saying you are a, an ex-religion person, it's you're a person and one part of your identity is that you mm. have mm. that religion and your own personal relationship with it. And it kind of, it's something that we can discuss and be open about, but it's not important. It, mm. it's, it's important to you, but it's not important what the answer that you give is mm. is more important that we're kind of discussing you don't it. get limited to just you're not that limited aspect and you're not pigeonholed exactly oh, yeah um yeah you 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 mentioned a very important fact that five students working under the supervision of a of a politician yes would you not say that the problem in today's society and the world is that people have intertwined faith and politics, whereas they are two completely different things. I suppose there is there is an overlap. We, you know, um, even in the local authorities have a duty to support their faith communities and they need to be advocated for. However, I'd, I wouldn't want to feel like my faith or you know well i'm i'm jewish so jewish people for instance um are being used to be played politics mm. with mm-hmm. for instance that's that's not a nice feeling but, that, but that's general. my point that's exactly but, my point that yeah shouldn't politicians be told you cannot do this yeah as, um and as an interfaith group which has successfully been set up and is actively doing uh, such fantastic activities would you from your opinion do you think that is something that should be kind of at the top level saying respecting our faiths our individual faiths includes not to politicize us or to use us for political gain i think i think that would be yeah that would be ideal um but we i suppose as a charity have to recognize that we can't constrain what politicians do always so we can True, do what we do and um i think through the through the leadership program through parliamentals which is one instance where we can have a, 
a small impact potentially on the mindset of the uh, nine or ten MPs that yeah. we work with throughout the year. Um, they they interact directly with young people of different faiths and see the power of different people mm. from different religions coming together and and often. You know, I found, especially as I'm doing community work and interact with people on a very personal level, that you you may not be able to immediately change something right at the top level mm. straight away. But if you can show people, for instance, MPs, the value of, let's say, young people in this case, of different faiths working together um, more harmoniously in a way where it's not politicised, mm. let's say, because it's, it's about positive social action in the community, this parliamentals programme, showing the real benefit of that. And hopefully you can change your mindset towards the better. And that's, that's often the way that we, um, that we do our work and that's how we strengthen, strengthen the movement. Yeah. Interfaith in its most basic sense is when people or groups from different religious or spiritual worldviews and backgrounds they 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 come together and similarly interfaith dialogue refers to cooperative constructive and positive interaction between people of different religious traditions here in the uk we have a relative diverse country which has welcomed people of different backgrounds ethnicities and religions when you live in diverse areas you would imagine that people integrate with each other easily or are very well connected this is not always the case as i said in the beginning and it is evident from you know observations that people of similar ethnicities religions and cultures tend to create their own bubbled up or their own closed communities and often find themselves in interaction with people similar to them this greatly prevents integration and many can be ignorant of or unaware of what is happening in other communities or culture which then again, if you move further and further down that road, gives rise to you know stereotypes being made, racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, etc., because people are not well integrated in society. Matthew, you at um, you know your organization, you do something, and again, this this is the main topic that we're trying to cover today. You do something to combat this. You do something from the very beginning when you mentioned about how it all started to have the three Abrahamic religions come together and, you know, talk about the commonalities, talk about something, the shared values, etc. So when we talk about the interfaith, the London Interfaith Fun Run, how do you achieve that through through this? Yeah, um, it's a really good it's a really good question because it seems like we have these high level values yeah. and yet we're doing a fun run. So um, what's what's the actual link? And I think a big part of the answer is actually people being together. Um, just just the fact of bringing people together, that's, that's kind of the first thing. Mm. So we have a big charity area and we encourage um, all the charities uh, of different religions coming. They're going to speak to each other and they're going to speak to participants on the day. So that's the first thing. So in, in, in a way, that's about sort of building movement, if you like, to refer back to the goals. Um, by speaking to each other and making new connections and introductions, they find out about different projects, programs, organisations that are, you know, within within a distance. Usually all these projects are from London, though you don't have to be in order to attend, but usually mm. because of where it's based. Um, so that's that's the first part. And I suppose on top of that, it's then experiencing different cultures so for instance we've partnered with um an organization called faiths in tune and they're going to provide um 
different performances from uh, all different cultures. So there's going to be a like a Muslim ensemble. There's Hare Krishna. There's going to be Jewish folk dancing. Different ways to experience different people's mm. um, cultures again. And I think more than more than all of that is being with people of different cultures and sort of experiencing joy together. I suppose understanding that being with people of different faiths, beliefs, maybe that you've just met, maybe you've met at previous events and that you can just have a joyful time, you know. Enriching. Exactly, it can be enriching. And you don't have to, you don't always have to have a serious interfaith dialogue necessarily. Sometimes strengthening interfaith is about making new friends from people of different faiths, experiencing a bit of culture, having a good time. Um, so that's that's really important. And I suppose the final thing is that the farm runs an opportunity for these different uh, faith organisations and charities that sign up to do some fundraising, which helps them from an organisational side of things to build their capacity, get in some resources as well. I'm glad you mentioned serious because we've been serious for 20 minutes. <laughs> and, you know, let's look at the let's look at the fun part of this. It is a fun run. And you have explained what is going to be happening. And, you know, this is an opportunity to fundraise and for people to, um, people from different faiths to come together. And your and there will be displays and, uh, and contributions from different faiths. Right. What's the goal? What are you looking to achieve by this fun run? And this is, this is not the first one, isn't it? As I mentioned, this is the, this is the third, third one. The third interfaith fun mm. run, yes. Um, the goal, well, for Faith and Belief Forum, as always, the goal is a more connected and inclusive society. And we use our events to help us do that. And, and you know, sort of just for the, partly for the reasons that I just gave, for people coming together, experiencing joy and a high point, we, we think that events like this will, will help achieve that. Um, I suppose, you know, Often we find that with the events that we run, measuring the exact impact is it's quite tricky because yeah. how do you measure social bonds exactly? Yeah. But we know that people come together at these events, that people really enjoy the day, that they stay in the network, that we can bring them into other faith and belief forum or could be Maccabi GB events potentially as well. What are the challenges of interfaith? Interfaith in general, I think... There's a few different things. It can be, there can be scepticism, mm-hmm. for sure. Sometimes groups do, maybe don't have trust necessarily in an outside group like us. You know, um, so for instance, Faith and Belief Forum, our main office is in Kentish Town. If we're trying to go somewhere else, it can there can be a question of who are you? Why do you want to? Why do you want to work with us? Mm-hmm. So the trust building process does take sometimes a long time, and we have to. We can demonstrate our record, show that we truly do have an interest and a stake in speaking to all these different organisations um, and that building trust and trying to work with groups is is really our goal. So that, that's, that's one challenge for sure. And I think making sure that um, the dialogue and the events that we run are are meaningful and that we have a clear sort of we talk quite a lot about our theory of change so why do we want to actually do the things Mm. that we do and making sure that what we what we do we're confident it will have an impact i suppose and 
and we are really um, overall because we we speak about that quite often. Um, we we use our various events like the fun run, and we're we're pretty clear that that they make a positive contribution to society, and that's what we want to do. What's the age logistics? How 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 are you able to generate interest in the youth across all of our programs? Yeah, yeah we we do. Um, we do a number of different things. So, for instance, the fun run, um, that's open to everyone. There's a family zone. There's activities for different uh, children, but it's also accessible if running's not, not really your speed. There's there's plenty of different things. So that's that's one event, for instance, where um, where, where all ages really are welcome, and, and that's intentional. And then across our different programmes, we have... Um, we work in primary schools, mm-hmm. um, so we go right from that age where we do, um, we call it encountering faith and belief, so people of different religious backgrounds will just explain a little bit about what it means for them to be from a certain religion, and they have, uh, they. we've been doing this year a project about giving religious artefacts to the different children and actually involving the parents of the children to take home and actually speak a little bit about with their parents so that um, parents feel they have a bit of a, a stake and more interest. Mm. So that's right at the younger age. As I say, we do similar um, in secondary schools and we go right the way through to working with communities like I do. And then, so obviously within communities, again, all age ranges and often um, the leaders of communities are a little bit more senior. Mm. Um and via universities, via workplaces, all all age groups, um, we cover in some way or another. Just for the benefit White of the li- just just for the benefit Masters. of the listener, brother Raza <laughs> just looked at just just looked at. Just My l- goodness, can I not look just, around? No, 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 no. You see, <laughs> not me. W- wisdom, w- the word wisdom, that yes. comes to we mind. We call it wisdom. <laughs> wisdom, <laughs> yes. That why senior the the wisdom the wisdom yeah, yeah. you can see the the light. Now, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one thing that I um, attended last year was an award ceremony that happened at uh, Westminster Abbey. First of all, very grateful to be invited. I was my first time actually in in the Abbey. Um, but you celebrate those achievements of people uh, for their work in their communities. Tell us about how you can get involved in that what are the criterias because uh, again what I saw was it was across across London I mean we're talking about Sikh communities we're talking about Jewish communities we're talking about you know Muslim everything across the board and especially last year what was highlighted was their work during the COVID period yeah exactly Um, (laughs) yes so they're the 7th annual London Faith and Belief Community Awards yeah 7th year now Um, yeah that's that's made possible with the support of the Lord Lieutenant of London's Council on Faith and um, yeah as you say we're recognising the work that community groups in London Hmm. are doing so there are so many different projects um, in terms of criteria that they have to work in London they can have paid or voluntary staff um, as long as the work they do is either motivated by faith and belief or helps uh, vulnerable and marginalised communities. As long as they have a community focus, they're based in London and they haven't received sort of significantly wider mm. um, recognition before. So if they received a, a national award or regional London award, 
um, we're, we're really looking forward to sort of unsung heroes yeah, as unsung. much as possible. And um, that's that's more or less all of the el- eligibility criteria. They'll win if, if they are one of the 40 winners. Mm. Um, there are 40 every year. Um, they'll get a £500 grant as well as um, <clears throat> access to uh, some free training, be part of our awards network, mm-hmm. um, invitation to some other events that are coming up. What What's your membership? Is there a membership or what's your... From a numbers and a, st- uh, a, a statistical perspective, what is what is the membership of the actual interfaith forum? We don't necessarily have members uh, in that way. We do have an interfaith charter, which mm-hmm. some groups have signed up to already, and um, we're sort of be relaunching again, uh, I believe, at the end of this year. Um, but in terms of we. I you mean, have like champions. You have uh, that, sort of thing, yeah. that that sort of thing. Organizations that are yes, people can the, be the, in touch. The reason I ask numbers is because to organize something like a f- interfaith fun run, mm-hmm. you need bodies. You need people. Manpower. Yes. It's manpower. So how does one um, organize such a such an event? So the Faith and Belief Forum. Well, to organize the fun run, we've partnered with a. We have our delivery partner, Maccabi GB who they have their own um, community fun run and they've been doing that for 20 years. So they're they're the experts in terms Mm. of the Mm. logistical side and um, that's really useful. They bring their expertise to to the, um, yeah, to the logistic side, as I say. And we, uh, Faith and Belief Forum, do more outreach. We focus on the charities and partnering with them and making sure there's an interfaith theme Mm. to the day. So in terms of manpower, it's the London Communities team plus um, our communications department and then we work with the Maccabi events team as well to make sure it happens now I, I mentioned challenges earlier latest figures at the last consensus figures were that people are becoming less and less religious how what's your take on that I suppose my main take is that the interfaith work that we do at Faith and Belief Forum is not we're not advocating for people to be more religious or less religious or anything along those like we're advocating that people we we want people to know how to better deal Hmm. with interfaith topics with dialogue ensuring that where possible there's less conflict um you know so we we i suppose want um we're not we're not focused in that sense on on the numbers even though we've talked about it and what it thinks it, what we think it means for our work but often you know when we're working with schools or university students they don't have to be religious at all so we're for people of all faiths and none and the and none is as important mm-hmm. because people of no faith of course have to work with people of, of faith and have to know how to navigate those dialogues so i suppose our perspective is we'll keep on working because there are still more people that identify as religious compared to those that that don't within the UK. And so we have to make sure that we navigate that well. Now, within the Amdiya Muslim community, we have the Peace Symposium where we celebrate and we um, encourage and we focus on the on the similarities that all faiths bring 
how do we bring that and how or how does your organization bring that narrative to the forefront because if one was to look at social media mainstream media politics whatever you want to call it division is the name of the game um how do you tackle that i suppose there's a few different um techniques that we can that we discuss often when we're doing uh, sort of our workplace or schools training so for instance it's very important to remember that each individual is an individual you don't you don't need to answer for a community you mm-hmm. are you you may be part of a community but that's that's it so to do things like that we even things like encouraging the use of i statements so i feel that mm. i i i understand that and and not saying you know x religion does this we we try and avoid that where possible and i suppose um in terms of unity i would also say it's it's as long as people are open and approach a dialogue in the spirit of tolerance that it's okay to not be the same you know unity doesn't have to mean being yeah of course being Mm. the same different religions Mm. have different foundational beliefs of mm. course um so so people won't have exactly the same values and and as long as people come at that with from a spirit of dialogue and we talk about dialogue not debate so when you speak to someone you're not ne- you're not trying to debate them unless you're in a actual formal debate um you're not you're not trying to win a conversation you're trying to mm. understand mm. and truly have empathy and understand that you're dealing with a person where you know some aspect of their life but you don't know everything you don't know what makes them Hmm. a whole person um and th- and that's really important so i think yeah i want to talk to you about or ask you about when you go into the schools and 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 you work with the kids what's the the parents involvement um because i know that from 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 some point of view parents they do have their reservations uh you know being a parent myself and and hearing these things from 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 school how how is that perceived i mean that approach that you have when you go into schools is that is that something that they welcome is that something that they appreciate or is that something that people say you know what um no i i don't think we we need that in general so i mentioned about that uh religious artifacts and bringing them home that uh, project that we started this year parents seem to have responded really well to that yeah. i think often i'm sure it's something that's come up for you before but intolerance can come from sort of an ignorance yeah and i think actually encountering that and involving parents a little bit more and and is really useful because they can they can see and they can discuss with their with their kid and if you personally need to under, um explain something then you understand it better and that helps and it brings and it and it actually brings more dialogue to more people as well through our work um i think I think, yeah, that that that's really. Um, I've slightly forgotten what the question was. Yeah. But that, that's important. How how's it perceived yeah. by parents that that initiative, and yeah. and also by teachers? Well, I'm not exactly sure what the teachers have said, but I think I think the the parents. Do you get any feedback? Anything from 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 parents or and like even yeah. from from the kids maybe? Yeah, I think. I think they find it they find it really interesting as well because they they it's it's a different style of learning you know it's compared to other school subjects yeah. this one's much more hands-on more hands-on more encouraging of sort of empathy it's almost more mm. it's like mm. social and emotional learning 
as well. So so it's in, it, it's truly kind of encountering the world in a in a different mm-hmm. way than than you would see in a lot of other school subjects, you know. Um, and I think that's that's really appreciated. And I think it is a soft skill, but it's so important. Yeah. I think that's that's really appreciated. Um, finally, Matthew, how important is it that communities hold various events and give time to interfaith dialogue? Because within the Amni Muslim community, you know, interfaith dialogue, um, you know, u- the uni- unification of faiths is part and parcel, and in fact, one of the core elements of our faith. How would you encourage other faiths or other communities to practice similar um, exercises, tasks, activities? How do you pitch it? Yeah. I think the main thing is that most communities really like it. Most communities really enjoy working with other communities and you don't have to start with really ambitious projects. It can be meeting up and... Mm. Let's say sharing some food. Everyone likes to eat, right? Mm. You know that that kind of thing is is relatively simple. But I think it just takes a a, a little bit of maybe courage to to make a, to make the first move. Maybe see if there's um, a religious institution, a church or mosque or temple or whatever that's that's within walking distance of wherever you're based. Let's say because that's a pretty good place to start if mm. they're your they're your neighbours, and everyone has everyone tends to have a really good time it, especially if you approach these things with the spirit of openness and tolerance and sort of just being willing to mm. open to understand about who this community that you're trying to approach is people really like it wonderful Matthew please stay uh, with uh, us thank uh, you uh, I got one uh, you got one, I got one more, more. Yeah. <laughs> on a personal level um, that's what I'm interested in when when you go out to these communities hmm? what's what's the best part what do you enjoy the most? What have you taken away in all that you, uh, you know, t- that time that you've been working? Sold that food and and apart from that, <laughs> do you know? What? I think I think it's how open people really are. People that I tend to work with really do want to. Everyone's really positive and altruistic yeah. and and sort of. You know, when you're stuck in details of event planning, for instance, that can, you know, that's event planning and details. And but when you actually go out and speak to people and you, you see smiling faces yeah. and see people that want to engage and like having a conversation and telling you about what they're doing and and you connect people with each other and making new ideas about ways that people within your network can kind of be together. It's you really feel like you're making a difference. On, on a personal level, it's really nice. Wonderful. So it's about peace, love, harmony. You're doing a collective good thing. Exactly. Where you're promoting peace, love, harmony. And Brother Raza, if I may come to you, I mean, we're coming up to the hour. I mentioned the the core element of um, the Muslim community mm. being, um, you know, being uh, unification, faiths, collectiveness. Um, and that is the teaching that has been given to us by the promised Messiah. So if, you know, before before we come up to the hour... Um, let our listeners know briefly about Promised Messiah and the Peace Symposium, please. Yeah, so the Peace Symposium, before I get to that, you're right. It, it starts with the foundation of the community in 1889, where in in a hostile environment, pretty much you know similar to what we have today, where it was all fair and 
you know, game to to attack each mm. other, to to make fun of each other's founders of religions and 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 whatnot. The Promised Messiah, the founder of the Yemeni Muslim community, has a Mazar Ghulam Ahmed on whom be peace. He 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 tried a different approach, saying that in in, in light of the teachings of the Holy Quran, that if you want. Um, to have dialogue, if you want to sit down with the other party, it doesn't start with with ridicule. It doesn't start with mocking. It doesn't start with disrespecting the other faith, because in turn they will do the same. Yeah, and that is counterproductive. We see in the lifetime of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he invited others to Islam, when he spoke with with people of of different faiths, Christians, Jews, and whatnot. He did not have that approach, and that's exactly what we have tried. As far as the peace uh, symposium is concerned, um, started by the current caliph of the Amir Sankriti, Hazmizah Masood, that was the goal, that we all share this planet, we all share this world, and we all need to do and need to play our part in order for, for, for this planet to survive and to make sure that we still give something to the com- the coming generations. And in that regard, every faith plays a major role. Every, pl- every faith needs to be at the same table talking about it and representing um, solutions to the problem that we as a society, as humanity in general, face all together. Matthew, we would like to say thank you very much to you for coming in, for sharing, and for telling our listeners about that. If uh, you want to find out more about that, then do uh, go to the Faith and Belief Forum on their website and find out more about that fund run coming up on the 3rd of September. From all of us here at the Draft Time Show, thank you very much for listening in. Have a great evening and a wonderful weekend ahead. We'll be back with you on Monday. Assalamu alaikum.